Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal, and this is my first day on the air here as the permanent host of the 9 a.m. hour. Today, I'll be joined by Mina Kim to talk about our plans for the show, and then I'll open a discussion with some of the most thoughtful people in the Bay Area about what makes this place special and what questions we should be asking about the state of the region and the world. That's next on Forum, right after the news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. And I'm Mina Kim. And I can't believe it's finally happening. Alexis Madrigal's first day as the permanent 9 a.m. host of Forum. The next chapter has begun, Alexis. Oh my gosh, it feels so good to be here. And I'm in the studio in the new building, too, on Mariposa. Right. And I cannot see you because I am so broadcasting out of my home studio. But I can tell you that I never could have imagined when you were a guest on the show recently with me talking about your COVID tracking project and, you know, that important and really incredible data gap that it filled that I would be lucky enough to soon call you co-host. It's it's really a trip. Yeah, I I love this program and I have for for years and it believe me it's extremely trippy for me as well you have for years I mean that is true because even with all the jobs you've had including as staff writer and editor at the Atlantic you told a friend years ago that hosting forum was your dream job why why is this your dream job well there's, there's kind of two big reasons one I mean I love the Bay Area I love the people of it. I love the radical traditions of the place. Um, I love its natural scenery. I love everything about it. This is really home for me. And Forum has a really special role to play, I think, in binding the community together, you know, and helping us hear each other, you know. (laughs) 
I think on social media, you're having this individual, algorithmically driven experience <laughs> that masquerades as a collective experience. When people are listening to Forum together, we're really listening to each other and, and all together. Oh, I love that. Well, we have been having a lot of conversations already about Forum, but but for listeners, how do you see the sweep of the show changing and evolving and the nine and 10 hours working together uh, while also having these distinct areas of focus, like the nine being focused on the Bay Area, the 10 that I do for a statewide audience? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think in our conversations, I think we're fundamentally interested in doing a lot of the same things. You know, we want to explain how the world works to people, you know, using yes. using the people in California and the, and the Bay to do that. We want to talk about who we are as people, uh, you know, just as individuals, but also, you know, as a region, as a state. Um, I think we just want to be more curious and provide good questions um, to ask about this place in the world more than we want to provide definitive answers that you must have because, you know, the world is a complicated place. And I think the better questions we ask, the better off we'll, we'll be. But how do you see the 9 and 10 o'clock uh, interaction? Well, that's such a good point. I mean, yeah, similarly, I, I think, of course, the thread of helping people make sense of big news events, cultural moments, really important to really make race and equity either implicitly or explicitly part of the approach to every conversation, to mm -hmm. to all of our topics, which I know we've talked about a lot, and also just... I, I want to broaden the umbrella of inclusion in every conversation, even if it's not about your specific community per se, right? That we understand how we all affect each other so much and that we all have a stake in hearing the quality of each other's lives in this region, in this state, in this world. So all of those things. Yeah. And I think there's even groups that get left out of many, you know, equity and inclusion discussions. Disabled folks, I feel like, are oftentimes left out of, yeah. of conversations that they could add a lot to. And I and I think that um, there's it's said well there's never enough groups that we can include and and take into account the way that they're seeing the world in in unique ways. Well, talk about what shaped you, Alexis, because I know you were born in Mexico City. Like, where did you grow up? What are the childhood experiences that really played a big role in shaping who you are? Yeah, so I, I was born in Mexico City, but we left when I was three years old. Uh, I grew up um, in Los Angeles, um, sort of at the end of our time there, in a, in a place called Silmar, California, um, if you know it. Uh, it's way, <laughs> way, way out in the valley. It's the end of the valley, basically. Uh, and then when I was 10, uh, we moved up to a, a small town in Washington State, where actually my grandmother on my Mexican side uh, had moved, called Ridgefield, Washington. So we went from a place that was uh, dry and hot to a place that was uh, where it rained for, I think, you know, 90 straight days one year. <laughs> uh, and we went from a place that was, you know, primarily Mexican to a place that was, was overwhelmingly white. And I think um, that gave us a lot of, um, it gave us a lot of different things to think about, you know. Uh, it's not a wealthy area. It was a rural place. It was kind of exurban in some ways, you know. <laughs> it's a place you'd manufacture vinyl fencing. And I think that really shaped the way that I see this country and its different kinds of, of divides, uh, both along, you know, class, race, urban, suburban, exurban, rural. Um, it really was a, an amazing place to, to grow up. Wait, how did it do that? How did it sort of reveal to you the nation's divides? Well, you know, when I when I went away to college, um, sometimes I would come back just 
furious because I realized that a lot of the people that I grew up with um, never got a chance really in the world. You know, they uh, were sort of rural, poor white people who didn't really uh, have a lot of engagement outside the town, outside our particular place. And and yet they were, a lot of them were talented, wonderful people who just really never got to get out of their hometown. And I, there was something very heartbreaking uh, for me about that. And where I went to college was, you know, a highly diverse place with people from all over the world. And it was, you know, it also a wonderful, cosmopolitan, awesome place. But I thought like, oh man, you know, there's, there's whole swaths of this country uh, who are just never getting close to seeing that that wider world. Yeah. When you say college, you mean Harvard? <laughs> yes. Yes, Mina. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for outing me on my very first show. I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody could do a search and, and realize that right away. But when you're comparing the environments, I just felt like, you know, um, but giving people a sense of, of what you were talking about. Um, one of the things, too, that I really loved is that you told me once that in sort of Ridgefield's nowhereness, that you also found it quite freeing in terms of being able to create yourself. Like, what did you mean by that? Well, you know, it's a tiny high school. You know, there were there were barely even cliques. It was that small. Um, our you know our mascot was an angry potato called the Sputter. Um, you know, this is a rural place, <laughs> and so we really did have a lot of freedom to just kind of, you know, you could be the student body president, and you could play football, and you could be into punk rock, all of which I was into at that time in my life, and you could just, you know, you, you had to fill a lot of roles because there were only so many people uh, who were going to high school there. Like, I didn't know uh, what was cool and uncool for a very long time. I may, Maybe I still don't, actually. Um and and I, I really actually thought that was a fun way to grow up, just sort of out in the sticks, like, you know, figuring out your identity from whatever you could find out in the street. So when did you come to the Bay Area? Like, what led you to the Bay Area? Yeah, um, so I first moved here in 2004 for a terrible, terrible job in finance that I quit after a few months. And then I came back for good um, with my now wife, Sarah Rich, an amazing person and, and someone who spent almost her whole adult life in the Bay. And we basically have tried not to leave ever since. Um, you know, We now live in Oakland, but we used to live uh, in the Mission. And I've spent time kind of all around the Bay at this point, traveling around for research for books and, and just friends and other things. What do you love about it? I, you know, I just sometimes I there's so much interesting history that's like embedded in every corner of of this place. You know, I think about down on Seventh Street in West Oakland. You know, you could just be standing right outside um, some public housing that's there that's named after a jazz club that used to be like along that stretch, and it also happens to be the block where you know Huey Newton got into a gun battle with police that eventually made the Panthers, uh, the Black Panthers, a, a global phenomenon. Um, you can see the BART that cut through that area. You can see the post office where, you know, urban renewal cut these big chunks out of the urban fabric in black communities. Like good and bad, all of those things I feel like really come together in the Bay. And we experience a lot of the things and phenomena that are happening in the world broadly, uh, but we experience them in a very heightened way here. Um, and I think that's something that I've always loved, you know, the peaks and valleys, the hills and flatlands, you know, the the heat and the fog. Like there's uh, there's so many things here where 
uh, you get these wonderful extremes. Yeah. Do you see yourself staying here a long time, Alexis? Oh, yeah. I'm never leaving. Yeah. <laughs> no, they'd have to physically throw me out of the bay to get me to leave this place now. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I cannot tell you how excited I am that you are taking over the 9 a.m. hour that really thinks about the Bay Area and and also just what a lift it's been for me personally to have you join Forum and and to brainstorm with you where we can take the show with our community of listeners. And I, I just really want to stress that they, the listeners, are such a big part of what makes this show what it is, right? I mean, yeah. they have a massive role, a, an essential role to play. Absolutely. And I think there's so many other ways that we can reach them. We, Mina and I have talked about this a lot. Um, you know, that we, on the digital side of our show right now, mostly we sort of put stuff out to you. We say, hey, here's all the programs we've done, you know, with you calling in. Uh, and, and posting comments. And I think we want to build a, a tighter digital community around the show only because I think it will actually make for sort of a better Bay Area. Like, I mean, that's ultimately uh, what what I'm about for when it comes to this show, a better region, a better California. Um, and I think we have the unique opportunity with a show like Forum to do that, to try and do that. And I think journalism so often is good at pointing out all the problems, right? Journalism is amazing at pointing out problems. Uh, and, and Forum, we get to both point out the problems and then we get to bring the people on the show who should be fixing them or who are fixing them and, and hold those people to account and bring those people to our, our listeners. And I, I just want to say myself, I'm just so honored to, to be hosting the show with you too. Your, <laughs> your empathy, your grace on the air, um, the sort of elegance that you cut in and out of all the different things that you do. Uh, it, it is, um, it's so impressive. And, and thank you so much for, you know, supporting my candidacy uh, for this job. <laughs> yeah. That is really nice of you, Alexis. Well, thank you for inviting me on to help kick things off as your guest today, interviewing you. And, you know, if anybody's wondering, Alexis did not see any of the questions <laughs> that I had for him. So anyway, have a great rest of your oh, show, Alexis. Thank Super you excited. so much, Mina. Thank you so much. Um, up next... I'll be talking with community leaders and with you, our listeners, about the big questions that you have about the Bay. We'll be right back after a short break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back. I'm Alexis Madrigal, co-host of Forum. And for my first day here, I didn't want to miss the opportunity to take stock of what we do. It's a new era for the show, and I want to spend a little time talking with our listeners and with leaders in the community uh, in the Bay about the role that Forum should play here. We're going to have to remake this thing together. It won't happen overnight, 
But I do think that when we look up in a couple of months, we'll have taken the elements of this show that people already loved, Michael Krasny's depth and, and the range of the topics that were covered on the show, and recombine them with some new ideas into an entirely different program. But we can't do it without you. So tell us, what are the big questions that we should be asking about and from the Bay Area? What's most important to you about this region and the world? What's overlooked? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. I'm not the only new face here around KQED. Otis Taylor is our supervising editor for Race and Equity here at the station and before that. He was a columnist at the San Francisco Chronicle and at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Welcome to the show, Otis. Hey, thank you, Alexis, and congratulations on your first day. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> so, yeah, your job, Otis, in part, is to think about the frames of KQED's coverage and how race structures the way we write and talk about people. When you look at local news broadly, um, do you think the way the media covers race has improved over the last five years? Sure, it has improved, but there is much, much room for improvement. And that's because the story of race is inextricably linked to the foundation of this country. The story needs to be recast and I believe re-reported. I mean, Alexis, but let's take homelessness in the Bay Area. In Oakland, where Black people are less than 30% of the population, they account for 70% of the homeless population. I believe homelessness can be traced to slavery and the restrictive policies enacted to disenfranchise and marginalize non-whites. The inequities in income and education that we see today and the outcomes of people impacted need to be addressed. I mean, just, just this morning, a report released by the Othering and Belonging Institute at UC Berkeley reveals how deeply segregated the Bay Area is. It's up to us to approach race and equity and inclusion soberly and honestly. And I'm so glad you're here at KQED to broaden the conversation. Yeah, you know, I mean, that history and its ongoing components are, are such a part of the what sort of structured my, my thinking about the Bay. <laughs> and, you know, when you look at a show like Forum, you know, this kind of community-based interactive program, I mean, what should that history, how should that history change the way we have these conversations on this particular program? Right. I'd like to see us meet people where they are. I'd like to see a more intentional representation of voices. And I'd like to see us talk to each other as neighbors, Alexis. We all live in the Bay Area. We pass each other on the streets. Um, soon enough, we'll be riding bark together. Um, more and more of us. I think the conversation needs to be uh, more inclusive, but it also has to um, invite those who are unaware of the issues that are impacting our, our, our cities and our neighborhoods. Yeah. You mentioned that Othering and Belonging report. We're actually going to do that, do show on that on, <laughs> on Thursday, in part because I think one of the things that, that you're talking about is, you know, we are an increasingly segregated region, actually. Mm -hmm. And one of the key things that I want this show to do is to try to bring people who otherwise wouldn't hear each other um, into conversation. I want to I ask you um, about your return to the Bay. So you were here working as a columnist for the Chronicle. Then you take mm -hmm. this job in Atlanta, but you couldn't stay away. You bounced right back uh, to the Bay. So um, why, aside from this gig, um, what brought you okay. back? 
obviously this opportunity to work for KQED was too good to pass up, but I missed Oakland terribly every single day. And it took me moving away ostensibly back home to realize that this was my home. I'm connected to the spirit of the Bay area. It's in me and the people I want to, I want to be that connection, that bridge of understanding um, to, to get us to, together, because I, I feel that we have so much here, so much wealth, so much love for other people that we can solve the problems if anywhere in this country can solve the, the issues that, um, that have been so pervasive. I think it's us. Yeah. What, what's a specific place you love in the Bay? Oh, are you talking about place or yeah, business? like a place, like a <laughs> like a spot? Yeah, uh, like my spot. You can catch me posted up at Jordan Waltz on College Avenue a couple times a week, and just talking to people, talking to people who come in. Um, I also like walking around or biking around Lake Merritt, and um, really, just this morning, I went uh, for a walk in the Oakland Hills just to wake up and clear my head and, and recover after uh, my first backpacking trip to Yosemite. So, um, Otis, what's an important question about this place that you think is still unanswered? I think uh, it's something I ask myself every day, and even when I'm conducting interviews with people, I'm I'm, I'm just so consumed with this, why do we have so much, so much wealth, so much material? Why do we have so much and then ignore the people with so little? Like, how can we as as people um, just allow ourselves to not um, not take care of each other? And I'm, I, I want to know. I want to know why is that? What systems have um, have we tapped into that allow us to look past the fallen person, the person who needs our help, and we have the ability, we have the resources to help. And so I'm really concerned, consumed with that, Alexis. Oh man, Otis Taylor, thank you so much, and I look forward to working with you on on the daily here uh, to make sure that we're framing things um, in a fair way and that bring more justice to the world. Um, I, I want to bring in Liz Ogbu. She is a designer, speaker, a spatial justice activist who's worked all over the Bay and country reimagining urban space. Hi, Liz. Can you hear me? Thanks for coming on. I can. Thank you for having me and congratulations on the new gig. Oh, thank you. I love everyone's congratulating me, all the guests. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, Liz, why don't you tell us a little bit about your work on spatial justice so that people actually know where you're, you're coming from? Yeah, sure. So for those of you who are not familiar with the term, spatial justice means that justice has a geography and that the equitable distribution of access, opportunities, and outcomes should be a basic human right. And so my work is often engaged primarily in low-income communities of color, as you noted, around the Bay Area and around the country, looking for ways to leverage design to try, try and achieve spatial justice in some of these communities. I think, you know, you can go to countless neighborhoods and cities across the country and see that there are differences in which neighborhoods get the nice parks, the better housing, the good jobs, nice transit, um, and which don't, and that it often falls along race and class lines. And so I believe that that should not be the case. And so I look for how do I 
um, steer what we can do to actually achieve it, where everybody gets a place that values their story. Yeah. Now, you know, a lot of people might think that the way to increase spatial justice, to do spatial justice, might be in the in the law, in the legislature, but you have a different set of tools. So what, how do you, what, what tools do you bring to bear on, on trying to, to execute your mission? Well, you know, one of the first things I do whenever I go in to work in any neighborhood is I ask who's not at the table and who's most impacted by what has happened in the past. And I make it my mission to go and hear their stories because the normative processes around which we, we develop our laws and policies and even how we do development sometimes actually tends to reward those who are, are time rich, not those who are time poor, um, those who stories we consistently hear and value, not those that we don't see. <clears throat> Excuse me. So I go into neighborhoods and I just go and talk to people and I don't just ask them what is it that they want to see, but I actually try to learn about their lives because I think, and you know, your conversation with Vote is into this earlier, you know, so much we, we keep on looking ahead and not doing a full accounting of what has happened in the past. And what that means is that we end up replicating things that are actually quite harmful. So, you know, um, in locally in Baby Hunters Point, I have been working for many years out at the old pg power plant site. And one of the first things that we did before we talked about what to do there was we went to talk, interview all the people who had been involved in the close, fight to close the plant and really ask them, what was that like? Why did they fight for that closure? And then what were they dreaming would be possible once that thing was closed? And it's only when you can open up to hear those stories that you can then start to envision what is an inclusive dream of what could be possible. Yeah. How, how are things different here in the Bay on these historical legacies than they are you know, other places that you work around the country? You, you know, it's a, it's a really interesting thing. In some ways, it's, it's quite different. And in some ways, it's exactly the same. I think, you know, in the, in the Bay Area, the gentrification pressures have been pretty intense. You know, we have seen enormous wealth be created in the last 20 and 25 years. Um, and at the same time, we have seen increasing segregation and the increasing amount of people who have been left out. And the particular resources of the Bay, I think, have exacerbated that at a level that is quite different than some other um, communities across the country. But at the same time, you know, the Bay Area is also where the Black Panther Party was birthed, right, here in Oakland, uh, where I'm based. And, you know, the Black Panther Party pioneered the, the free lunch for um, kids and a lot of other things that we see as core values of how we should be treating everybody in the community. And so I think it's understanding what is really good about our past that we want to carry forward and what do we regret um, that we need to like finally turn around and address. But I would say this, this reckoning in a way that has been a theme through um, what people have said so far Really, that, that's a conversation that's happening across the country. Mm-hmm. I want to uh, bring in a comment from listener Curtis. Um, many comments about housing. Not surprising. Curtis says, yeah. affordable housing is such a critical component for the Bay Area. It should always be at the top of the list for news and discussion. 
When you mentioned the housing development on 7th and Oakland that was named after a famous jazz club, I immediately thought of Slim Jenkins' affordable housing development. That's, in fact, the one I was thinking about. We need to be collectively advocating for more affordable places to live in the Bay Area, and I hope that you continue to air shows that help with the efforts. And I want to ask you, Liz, is affordable housing going to be enough? Like, is that the the sum total that we need for spatial justice, or do we need uh, more components? I think we need more. Uh, So I often quote um, one of my clients for a project that I'm working, a housing project that I'm working on in um, Charlottesville, Virginia. And he has challenged all of us on the team to say that if all we do is build better housing, we're just helping the poor be poor better. And so I think that housing is important, right? It is a minimum basic need. But if all we do is create better shelter, move people off the street, while it is one step, it is not the only step. And I think that's one of the things that I would say in this country we really struggle with is we're very reactive and we go to like, what's the the easiest thing we can do to solve the problem. But if someone is still trapped in the bounds of poverty, which say that like if you if you get housing or if you get a job, then other costs increase and we reduce the subsidies that we give for you. We never actually set up opportunities for people to build wealth and have a stable life that they actually have a hope of being able to pass on to their kids. And so yes, we should create more housing, but I think we also need to talk about what is the wraparound service? How are we really asking the question of how do we meaningfully shift people out of poverty? And that until that is done, we have not actually succeeded in this effort. You know, the the way we've talked about urban change for for so long, for really for decades now, is kind of within the structures of gentrification. Um, But when I was looking at your work and reading your project descriptions, I, I realized that you actually don't use that term that often within the context of your own projects. So do you think that sort of talking about gentrification is still a productive way of getting at the dynamics of urban change or, or is there some new discussion that needs to happen? That's a great question. And I think, you know, one of the challenges when we rely on gentrification is that we reduce it to this literal and figural figurative black and white conversation. And it's either the haves and the have nots, this or that. And we never actually get to talk about the nuances. So, um, you know, um, and I'm totally blanking on his name now, but uh, an economist for the Brookings Institution, who, Andre Perry, who talks about, um, you know, gentrification is when there is an investment in place and not people. And so I think we get so caught up with what we see as gentrification and displacement, but we don't ever get to the point of asking the question of like, what would investment look like that actually benefited the people who were already there and acknowledge that actually there are resources that are there in terms of the, the sort of family and cultural relations, but there's not financial resources. And so that investment actually is of benefit, but because the people who are centered as part of the benefit are not the people who've been living there all along, it you know, triggers what we see as gentrification. So in my work, I really start to ask the question, the problem is not the investment. <laughs> the problem is who does the investment benefit? And that unless we are intentional about asking that question, then we, yes, we are participating in the system of harm. And so I acknowledge that gentrification is a real thing, but I think if that's all we focus on, it keeps us from asking the true questions that we need to ask in order to create that larger, broad benefit 
that ultimately centers those who have dealt with the rough conditions all along. And so I, I try in my work to make sure that we, we really have a conversation about that, not the sort of other things that are very topical and popular to talk about, but actually get trapped in this cycle where we're, we're either in a state of argument or um, we're in a state of urgency, which is really about like, how do we forget that this, move to forgetting that this thing makes us uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Let's go to the phones. We've got a caller, George, in Los Altos. Uh, Yes, hi. Thanks for taking my call. Um, You know, I was hoping, Alexis, that you use this uh, platform to try and heal the sort of blue-red divide that's, you know, that's all over the country, but it also exists in the Bay Area. And I the comment is that it won't just happen by just listening and sort of layering on, plastering on more and more blue side uh, speakers. I mean, I'm a progressive myself, but I totally sense the frustration that the other side feels. And it's become so bad that nobody agrees on the facts anymore, even on basic stuff. Um, So I think that this program can have a huge transformative effect by simply allowing the facts to come out by simply listening carefully to all sides. And Brian Lehrer's model in New York, obviously, is a, is a great one to follow. Yeah, I think Brian Lehrer is a, is a fantastic model of that. I totally agree with that. And I, I, we will air all kinds of views on this show. That is uh, for sure. Thank you for your call. Let's go to uh, Hari in Fremont. Hey, Alexis. First of all, congratulations and thank you for taking the baton over for Forum. Uh, I'm sure you're going to make this program very unique on your own. I'm looking forward to the journey with you and Nina. Um, but what I really wanted to uh, you know, talk about today was uh, what I really loved about Michael was the breadth and depth of the topics he covered. But more importantly, how he made it relatable and thought-provoking for a common man like me, whose knowledge is pretty much limited to my particular area of work. Got it. Well, thank you so much, Hari, for that comment on uh, Michael Krasny's legacy and what we hope to do here making complicated issues um, exciting, accessible, and explaining how the world works. We've been talking about big questions with Liz Ogbu, urbanist, spatial justice activist, founder, and principal of Studio O. Thank you for joining us, Liz. And we'll have more forum after the break. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal, and we want to hear from you. We're talking the big questions we should be asking of the Bay. What are the important issues? What's overlooked? Give us a call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook, of course. We're at KQED Forum. Or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Few listener comments. Robert writes, 
Forums should continue to present perspectives from all sides, but perhaps be less cautious on occasion for the host to take a stand presenting the easily observable objective truth. Don't take the easy route, proclaiming that both sides always have valid perspectives. We'll say one thing about that, which is that I've been heavily influenced by my early work writing about climate, um, where there was an enormous uh, push to cloud the facts about climate change, and I don't think we'll be doing that here. John writes, um, about spatial justice, International Avenue in Oakland has a vastly improved rail system and paved surface and markings, better than, say, the gourmet ghetto in Berkeley or even Piedmont of Montclair. We also have some show suggestions. Um, Sabu tweets, would you dedicate some shows to examining what the word multiculturalism actually means in the Bay Area? Where and how does it flourish in a human-connected sense? And Emily has a similar idea. I'd love a discussion of how mixed-race individuals navigate our expanding racial discourse and the role, separately, I think, and the role of women in the construction trades, which is, in fact, fascinating. Let's um, go to the phones. We've got Austin in Occidental. Hi. Uh, thank you so much for these, uh, this program today. I'm really grateful for um, your taking input. Um, one of the things that comes to my mind is just uh, the sacred nature of the Bay Area itself. And it's just unique geography with the Golden Gate and Alcatraz Island and the peninsulas, the Sacramento and the San Joaquin Rivers feeding into that. And I really think that one of the things that the Bay Area as a, a forerunner and a leader can be the way that we reanimate our relationship, the landscape with Mount Tam, with Mount Diablo, again, with the Golden Gate itself, in the, and start to take on that indigenous mindset that didn't see the land as other from us, but actually saw us as inherently integrated and dependent upon it. Um, and I do think that a lot, if we can do that in the Bay Area and really kind of hold that sense of reverence towards the land and the, the quality of these shows can start to, you know, start to ingrain people that, hey, all of this is taking place on, on land that sometimes we take for granted. Yeah, you know, Austin, I, it's funny. I actually have thought about this a lot, you know, up on, on Diablo. I oftentimes hike up there and take a look around. And I think like, man, you know, every human being who has ever passed through this area would know Mount Diablo because of its, you know, sort of unique positioning would know Mount Tam um, there sort of guarding the Golden Gate. And I think one of the things that's tough is how we actually turn that into media, like that experience of of uh, the, our, our natural landscape and the, how beautiful it is and how unique it is. It's and I think we're going to we're, we're going to try. I will give you that. I will tell you that, Austin. We will definitely try and bring that uh, perspective to the show. Um, let's go to Peter in San Francisco. And thanks for that, Austin. Yes, hi, it's Peter Warfield from Library Users Association, and I'm very glad to hear you're in. And I hope uh, in terms of the future that you do talk more with people who are in the trenches, so to speak, the, the progressive and radical folks that uh, you mentioned earlier uh, as a tradition in the Bay Area, uh, not just uh, focusing so much on the officials who are presumably doing things about what's going on. At the library, for example, they have a wonderful uh, motto, free and equal access, but it's not free very often and it's not equal in many cases. Uh, the work that we've done certainly has 
shown that the library does not live up to its uh, slogan. Key issues that are broader in, in fact, uh, where do we get information and where do we get good information and do we get it as we should? We don't always uh, have the library as uh, accessible as we would mm -hmm. like. Mm -hmm. uh, and then also, how are we enabled or blocked from civic and political participation? So, for example, about two weeks ago, the Sunshine Ordinance Task Force found in our favor on a complaint that the library had not given us a fair and reasonable opportunity to make public comment at one of its me remote meetings, one of its early remote meetings. And that's a larger issue because the technology <clears throat> excuse me, sometimes can increase and improve access of certain sorts, but sometimes can be a real blockade. And the yeah. impact of technology on just routine civic life and civic awareness and uh, the ability of people to function, I and think, is often overlooked in its in terms of its negative consequences and what might be done about that. Thank you, Peter. Yeah, I think it's true that, you know, we want to play this role in sort of knitting together different information sources, sort of as both as a, a front end to KQED's news offerings, but also uh, more broadly to bringing the, the good source of information, fact-based um, reporting and, uh, and good perspectives to, to the show. Um, we're talking about the big questions that we should be asking about and from the Bay Area, what's important to you and what's overlooked. Here with me now is Saru J. Raman. She's the director of the Food Labor Research Center at UC Berkeley. She's also president of One Fair Wage and co-founder of Restaurant Opportunities Center United. Welcome to the show, Saru. Hi, thanks for having me. So one of the things that's always intrigued me about your work is how you connect up the restaurant industry's labor to so many other fights for justice. Why have you devoted so much of your life to fighting for this particular group of workers? Well, um, they're hard to ignore, especially now. Uh, you know, the industry, the restaurant industry prior to the pandemic was the nation's largest, one of the largest, second largest, in fact, and absolute fastest growing private sector employers, nearly 14 million workers prior to the pandemic. But it's been the absolute lowest paying employer for generations, actually, since emancipation of slavery, when the whole structure of wages and tipping in this country was birthed at, at emancipation. It's a direct legacy of slavery, the low wages in this industry and the way in which tips have replaced wages. And so to me, the more, the more that I've worked on this issue for the last 20 years, the more I learn, the more uh, we organize, the, the more we understand that really this industry is the epitome of, frankly, racialized capitalism in the United States. The, le the legacy of slavery that exists in the way that wages in our economy are structured, frankly, unfortunately, the ways in which corporations control our democracy and the way people are paid and treated. Um, it's a very gendered issue, given that the vast majority of tipped workers in the U.S. are women. It's a very racialized issue, not just because of the legacy of slavery, but the way in which, unfortunately, tips reflect our biases as Americans. And so to me, it is uh, the epitome of what is really at the root of the structural problems we need to address in this country, the intersections of race, capitalism, and gender that have resulted in severe inequities that, that are resulting in right now as we emerge from this pandemic, frankly, our inability to fully recover. We are not going to see the restaurant industry that we had prior to the pandemic come back 
um, in the way it was unless we address these issues. Because frankly, in this moment, workers are not willing to go back to the industry that was there before. Mm-hmm. Stay, stay with us, sir. I want to go to caller Sean in San Jose, who has a, a related point. Hi. Um, yeah, I don't see enough support for, uh, for farm worker families. Um, you know, we, we care about, uh, we, I see a lot of care shown for uh, uh, artisan uh, food makers, uh, uh, wineries, right? Um, but um, farm worker co- uh, uh, communities, they're lacking infrastructure. There's a digital divide. Um, there's a lot of basic services um, uh, that, uh, uh, that are really lacking. Um, the Center for Farm Worker Families, a nonprofit operating in Santa Cruz County, uh, uh, they put a little film together uh, showing one of their distribution uh, events. Most of the time, these farm workers who are largely indigenous um, and from, comp- and from uh, Central America and Mexico, um, they can't afford to eat the, f- eat the crops that they raise. Um, you, you know, even on a, a, a you know a daily basis. So um, yeah. there's a lot of little things people can do. Like I use the Nextdoor app, drive around, um, get um, you know a nursing supplies, anything anything that a family would need, and they and they get donated to uh, a monthly distribution event. But when you talk about infrastructure, you know um, <clears throat> these people are your neighbors not some faraway place, um, Monterey and Santa Cruz. I mean, if you live in the Bay Area, these are your neighbors. They're using the same power grid. They have the same needs as everyone else. Mm. Um, it's not just about your salad and your strawberries. It's what you consume on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Hey, sir, how do you connect up the sort of the fight for justice in the fields with what's actually with, with your organizing in, in restaurants? I mean, it's all part of, unfortunately, a food system in the U.S. and in California, most of all, given that we have the largest uh, food system and the largest economy of any state. It's all part of a food system that is built on, unfortunately, underpaid and exploited labor. And honestly, it's just not it's not going to last. It's not sustainable. You know, we if you put all food workers together, it's about 20 million workers in the U.S. That's one in five private sector workers. And that enormous population of workers from farm workers to the folks who who transport the food to the retail and restaurant workers, that entire food chain is the absolute lowest paid sector of the U.S. economy. And if those workers say, as they are in the restaurant industry right now, we're not willing to do it anymore for these wages, that means we need to think about, we as a country and a state have only two options, either raise wages and improve working conditions, or frankly, expect a much shrunken food system, expect half the restaurants, expect half the Sunday night, you know, Sunday brunches and Friday night date nights. Like we just cannot enjoy the quote unquote convenience of ridiculously undervalued labor in the food system any longer because the workers aren't going to put up with it. So it's all connected. It all goes back to, as I said, 
unfortunately, a, a racialized history in the U.S., both farm workers and restaurant workers were excluded from the minimum wage when it was first established as part of the New Deal because of racism. Farm workers at the time were mostly Black. Tipped restaurant workers at the time were mostly Black. They did not want to give these workers the same wage that they were guaranteeing everybody else. And unless we deal with that legacy now and raise these wages across the board, uh, in the fields, in the restaurants, you know, provi provide these workers with the, the value, of the, basically value them for the frankly skilled professionals that they are, that we rely on them to be, then we have to expect a much smaller food system. We have to expect a lot less convenience. We have to be willing to put up with a lot less if we're not willing to, to pay. Yeah, thank you. We've been talking to Saru Jayaraman. She's director of the Food Labor Research Center at UC Berkeley and also president of One Fair Wage and co-founder of Restaurant Opportunity Center United. Joining me now is Jasmine Guillory. She's a New York Times bestselling writer and author of the forthcoming book, While We Were Dating. She's also a former lawyer and keeper of Bay Area culture. Welcome to the show, Jasmine. Thank you so much for having me. So, you know, you were a lawyer, made the jump into writing best-selling novels, and I admire the courage to do that here in the Bay, where things are so expensive. So, question is, um, why choose to create here when the cost of living is so much higher than in other places? I mean, I don't think I had a choice in the matter. Like, the Bay Area is my home. You know, I am a fourth-generation um, Oakland resident. My um, On one side, my grandparents um, moved out here in the... 40s in another side my great-grandparents moved out here in the 30s and so Oakland and Berkeley and the East Bay is like in me um and I don't think there's there's any other place that I could um create and I think that you know I grew up like I fell in love with books and reading because of the Berkeley Public Library, the Oakland Public Library, because of growing up basically on the campus of UC Berkeley when my parents were, you know, getting their degrees. And so this place is in my blood. Mm -hmm. um, Jenny commenter uh, says, Michael Krasny covered arts and literature and all of the new hosts seem news-based. Will you still focus on the important local arts, literature, and culture I've listened for 23 years? And that is what made Forum unique to me and I am also a lover of fiction, and I think it does have a really important role to play in understanding the world. Jasmine, how do you how do you see this? I mean, you've been listening to the program. You've heard a lot of the big problems that people have brought up. I mean, how does fiction help us understand uh, these problems in the world that we live in? I mean, I think there's so many different ways, right? I think, number one, sometimes it's easier to, to think about problems and understand them when they're in the context of telling a story, you know? I think a lot of times, so often news is, especially as we've seen one over the past year, right? News is about like high level stuff and statistics and policies, and that's all well and good and that's important, but you really need to think about like, how does this affect people? And sometimes really telling, telling a story about what has happened to people because of, you know, because of climate change, because of the pandemic, because of housing prices going up. That's what makes you really understand things. And, and I think 
fiction really tells those stories and all kinds of fiction, you know, it doesn't have to be, sometimes I love literary fiction and sometimes that's it, but romances can tell those stories. Science fiction tells those stories, like young adult literature, children's literature, all of those books tell those different stories to people who want to hear them. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I totally agree. I mean, you've seen the East Bay and, and well as, you know, the entire Bay Area undergo a lot of change in your time growing up here. I want to ask you, um, what's one cultural thing that's sort of been lost and one new cultural thing um, that you appreciate that's that's new? Oh, that's a great question. I think, you know, something that I, I've always appreciated about the Bay Area is is the diversity, right? The like kind of diversity of like people, different cultures, thought. Um, and that is one thing that I think has stayed the same. I think that some of what has been lost is as, as housing prices have gone up, as gentrification has really pushed its way into different parts of the Bay Area, we have lost some of those voices of our elders who really understood, you know, what the Bay Area was and what it could be. And I and I think I have missed that a lot in being able to hear from people who have had been here, you know, their whole lives. Um, but I do, I love hearing new voices. You know, I think it is, I think so often those of us who have been here for our whole lives kind of talk about like, oh, new people moving in, right? But I, I think it's always good to hear perspectives from the outside. Like, I do love hearing what do people who haven't lived here forever love about the Bay Area? And what do they wish could change? You know, I think that's really important to think about um, and to pay attention to. Thanks to Jasmine Guillory. She's the writer and author of the forthcoming book, While We Were Dating. And I also just really want to thank all the guest hosts who filled in during these past few months um, while we've been waiting to come on the show. And also a special thanks to Michael Krasny for building this institution. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
all over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.